Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles. Guess who's back, back, back. Yes, I'm back, back, back. <laughs> it was weird not having you on it last week. I felt like we were going to make a total mess of it, but I think it went okay in the end. And for those that, that have probably never listened to this and are like, I have no idea who you are or what this is. I'm Angela. From they don't the need band. to know. They don't need to know. It's fine. They'll pick it up. I'm Angela. I'm Kerry. And I wasn't on the show last week. Which... You weren't. Which um, the plan was never that I was going to do all of them anyway. I think that sentence was a little bit wrong there, but I think you get what I mean. Yeah, but it sort of has worked out that you're on most of them, which is fine. I mean, you've got to sit and edit them, so I yeah, think it's okay. Yeah, it's like to, for me not to do them just means the fun bit is is removed. That's true. You just have to do the rubbish, boring bit, and you don't get to do the fun well, bit. Although I quite, I quite like it. I don't really edit them, which I think people people <laughs> well, will have true. noticed. So it's just like, yeah, well, I just yeah. don't do it. <laughs> just have to like put the bits together if, because... Yeah, we don't always manage to do it all at once. Yeah. So this is, as I said, this is Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles, which is, I don't know, what would you say? A part music podcast, part music trivia. Part us talking a lot of bullshit. Part yeah. us playing some new bands. Limited facts. It's uh, for people who probably pick up the odd thing from something they read somewhere, can't remember all the details, and besides it, back to their friends thinking that they know what they talk about talking about even so uh yeah and and we can't even speak and construct sentences so if if that's that's you then this this is probably the podcast that you're going to get on with yeah that's it it's been a long day in isolation i've not spoken to many people so i will attempt to uh, construct i'm already failing construct coherent sentences and what i'm seeing (laughs) right now because me and kerry are skyping um, doing this so all I can see is she's sat in in an attic which is a British term for loft <laughs> loft is that American is it is it called loft in America, I got, America? I think, yeah uh, I think so I'm not sure to be honest with you attic loft I can't I, no we call it a loft and they call I, they yeah, call I don't care attic. I don't Who even knows? care gone so, down the road we didn't need to go down exactly with that really, anyway <laughs> she's locked in in an attic it's like something out of um I cut flowers in the attic, but hopefully with no incest. I made the mistake of uh, coming back to my parents. I'd forgotten that I was always locked in the attic as a child and uh, came back and they've they've locked me in the attic again. So that's what's happened. Kerry's like a kind of Harry Potter character. That's with, it. That's without, me. without any magic. I've got the scar and everything just hidden under my masses of hair. So she's just got a scar and lives in an attic. And that's it. <laughs> okay. That's it. That's- <laughs> That's what, that's everything about me that's interesting. <laughs> so I suppose, um, so coming up on the show today, I am going to play music by a band called Tiger Mimic. And I am going to talk about Sid and Nancy. Mm. It's a Sex Pistols story. Very exciting. I am going to play some music by Skies. And I am going to talk about Nina Simone today. Ooh. Ooh. How are you going to do that one? There's lots to cover. There is so much to cover and I love her so much. Um, So I've tried to not do everything 
because um, there is just so much about her that's so fascinating. So I'm going to do sort of like her origin story, sort okay. of like as if she, sort of like as if she were like a superhero because she is kind of like a superhero. Uh, and yeah, do her her origin story of how she came to be. All right. Nina Simone, in all of her glory, her origin story. So, uh, she was born Eunice Kathleen Wayman on February 21st, 1933, in small town North Carolina. So, when uh, she was born, it was sort of during the, the Depression, so her family were pretty poor, also a very religious family. Um, and music was a massively integral part of her life um, from her childhood, because her whole family played music and sang, both at home and at church. Um, none of them ever had any formal training. They all, uh, what she says is they, they learned to play the same way that they learned to walk. It was that natural. So music was just such a natural part of her life, um, always, basically. Um, and apparently when she was a baby, the women at church would notice that she was clapping in time with the music, even as a baby. So from that point, it was proclaimed that she was blessed. You know, <laughs> she was basically just always destined um, to do music. So, I mean, this carried on throughout her childhood. And by age two, um, her mother caught her playing hymns perfectly at the piano. Oh, been no, she didn't. Apparently, apparently I, so. So anyone who's got a two-year-old <laughs> will know, will know that that is just not. Well, according to Nina Simone herself, at age two, she was just, you know, she started messing around on the piano in the house. Um, well, yeah, that bit, I can I can imagine, you know, I wish I had a piano here now with like the, the hitting the keys. And, <laughs> and well, uh, apparently she just yeah. picked it up so naturally that, you know, the hymns that she had heard at church, um, she was able to recreate at age two. She, so she claims. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so... Assuming that's true, um, she was always told, uh, you know, from that age by her family and everyone around her that, you know, her talent was a gift from God and that she had to be thankful for it and she had to nurture it. So I reckon it's pretty believable because by age six, she was the regular pianist at her church. Hmm. <laughs> well, OK, you can be sceptical about it, but I'm going to I'm going to choose to believe it. Um, so yeah, so she was the regular pianist at her church by age six and, um, playing in church sort of shaped a huge part of what her musical style was. Um, she says in, uh, in her autobiography that gospel taught me about improvisation, how to shape music in response to an audience, and then how to shape the mood of the audience in response to my music, which I thought was interesting because I think that was one of her big sort of powers as a performer, was the way in which, um, you know, it wasn't the case that she would get on stage and play her music the same way every night. It would really sort of flow out of her and she did a lot of improvisation um, and would really shape the mood of the audience in that way. So the idea that she was sort of responding to how the audience were to, from the responding to the energy of the audience, I suppose, and then also influencing it um, and that coming from church and gospel, I think just makes a lot of sense basically and is interesting. Um, so her, her mother was a housekeeper for a, for a white family, um, and her employer, Mrs. Miller saw Eunice play and basically wanted to pay for her to have tuition for a year. So, um, at age six and a half, she started having piano lessons with an English lady called, uh, Mrs. Muriel Masinovich, which I hopefully said right, um, who Eunice came to know, uh, as Ms. Mazzy which is what I will call her from now on because it is much easier to say. Um, and uh, she was basically a very disciplined and strict teacher who would only let her play Bach. 
So, you know, she's gone from playing all this sort of church and hymns and gospel music to then this this teacher who's like, you must play only Bach, um, which frightened her to begin with. Um, I mean, she was only six Um, uh, because it seems so complicated and different, but she actually ended up totally falling in love with it. Um, And from that point, uh, never wanted to be anything except a classical concert pianist was her dream from age six, which is young. Uh, One moment, guys, we're just going to pause as I've got a child screaming in the background. Well, not screaming in the background, on her monitor one minute. (laughs) So we'll pick up on that, Kerry, one sec. And I'm back. Sorry about that, that Kerry. It's all right. No, Julia's Julia's with Beth now. <laughs> Good. Yeah, so Beth just keeps waking up saying, I need a drink. <laughs> Is it morning now? It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> to be fair, I feel like that's always how I feel when I wake up in the night. Anyway, what was I chatting about? Um, s- you, you were saying that she suddenly just wanted to be classical yes pianist. exactly so um yeah the teachings of, of Bach that scared her at first basically kind of converted her um to classical music and and that was what she wanted to do um so after the year of um mrs miller paying uh, for her tuition was over um and she couldn't afford to do it anymore uh ms mazzy then set up the eunice waymond fund um which basically people from the town contributed to um, so that her tuition could continue because obviously she was playing in church um, and then also started doing recitals from age eight um, to, you know, show how talented and what prodigy she was sort of thing to the community. And then people wanted to to give money to help her with her progression and everything. Obviously, race was is a big part of sort of this whole story. Right. Um, but she says that at that young age, it wasn't something that she was really very aware of. Because I think they, her family didn't really talk about it at home. It was sort of like this great unspoken thing in her house. And I think the town that she was from was a little less segregated compared to a lot of other southern towns at that time. So there wasn't sort of like the black side of town and the white side of town. It was a little bit more sort of mixed up together. So the first time she really became aware of sort of race and racism uh, was when she was 11, when she gave a recital and her parents had been sat at the front. And as she came to the stage, she saw them being forced to move to the back of the room. And her being her, she refused to play until her parents were allowed to move back to the front, which they sort of did kind of embarrassed. But that was her first sort of experience of really seeing racism and in obviously quite a personal situation as well with, you know, her parents at her own recital being forced to move to the back. Yeah. So what she she says about that was, uh, the day after the recital, I walked around feeling as if I had been flayed and every slight, real or imagined, cut me raw. But the skin grew back a little tougher, a little less innocent and a little more black. So this was a pretty significant moment for her that sort of began to to shape those feelings, although it took a long time for her to really fully accept it and, and choose to become involved in the, in the civil rights movement. Um, this was sort of like the first step on that journey, if you like. When it was time for her, obviously, at that age, to go to high school, um, she went to a private high school that was paid for by the Eunice Waymond Fund so she could continue her piano tuition there. Um, she graduated valedictorian, which I think means top of your class, basically. Yeah. It's an American yes, thing. It's, we don't it, have... it's, a good, it's a good thing. Good, it's a good yeah, thing. Exactly. So, um, so because of that, she was offered a scholarship uh, by the Juilliard School of Music in New York. 
uh, which is obviously pretty massive. Um, and it was sort of decided by her mother and Ms. Mazzy that she would attend Juilliard for one year um, to prepare for the scholarship exam. Scholarship exam? That wasn't words. <laughs> for the scholarship. Scholarship. Um, scholarship. No, um, for the uh, scholarship exam uh, to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. Um, so at this point, it's sort of, although she does want to be a, a classical pianist, it's sort of like the decisions are really being more made by sort of her mother and by Ms. Mazzy and these people around her. And she keeps referring to herself um, at that time in her autobiography as sort of like an obedient child. Um, you know, she was sort of doing what she was told. And I think that her own hopes were sort of second to it in a way, um, because she says it was her mother's dream for her to become the first black classical concert pianist. Um, and yeah, at this point, really, she was just going along with what she was being told and sort of trying to fulfill other people's dreams to an extent. She says that, you know, music made her feel pretty lonely and isolated, really, because, you know, she was a kid and she was so busy practicing and having all this tuition and playing in church and, you know, pretty insane amount of stuff she was doing, really. Uh, she didn't really have time for friends and like normal childhood stuff. Um so she went to Juilliard, spent the year preparing for the exam. Um, and it was then that she really started to feel that like this was what she was born to do, um, that all the hours spent practicing had all been leading up to this. And this was her destiny, you know, to be on the classical concert stage. Um, so as the day of the exam approached, she like knew she would be ready. She was going to be able to do her best. Super pumped, basically. It was like, yeah, I'm going to smash this. Um, I'm sure that's exactly what she said. Um, so she uh, so she went to Philadelphia, took the exam, uh, returned back to New York to keep studying. And um, before long, she heard back from the Curtis Institute uh, saying that she wasn't good enough and rejecting her. Now, was it because she wasn't good enough or was it a race thing? Well, exactly. Right. So she could never know for sure. Right. Nobody could know for sure. No one's going to from the Curtis Institute is going to stand up and go, hey, we're racist. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not going to happen. Um, but she did start to hear from people basically that she didn't get in because she was black. Um, you know, she was hearing from people who knew people sort of connected to the Curtis Institute who said that the Institute wanted to enrol black students. Um, but if they were going to enrol a black student, it wouldn't be an unknown black student. If they were going to enrol an unknown black student, it wouldn't be an unknown black girl. And, you know, if they were going to enrol an unknown black girl, it wouldn't be a very poor unknown black girl. So it was sort of like... You know, so it was, it was like she had a number of things yeah, the, against her. Pretty much. Just... Whether she was good enough or not, she never really had a chance. But if you imagine, like, her whole life has basically been leading up to this point, right, from when she was a tiny infant. You know, she's been told that she's special, that she's been chosen by God. She's worked and practised hours and hours a day. It's the only thing she knows how to do, all leading up to this dream that everyone has sort of built up for her, that she's going to go to the Curtis Institute, yeah. she's going to become the first black classical concert pianist. And then she gets there and it's like, no. So she was basically completely crushed. And yeah, could never know for sure whether it was because of the colour of her skin or not. But, you know, ultimately that was what she ended up believing. But she says, like, there was always this nagging thing of, was it that? And then, okay, she's hurt by the prejudice and everything. But then there was a nagging thing of, like, or is it that I'm actually not good enough? Um, so at that point, she felt she was done with music. She was like, that's it, can't do it anymore. So she gave up playing completely um, for a while. And she worked as an assistant in a photographer's darkroom until eventually her brother... Uh, actually managed to 
convince her that she was too good and that she had to take up music again and she'd been missing playing. So she ended up deciding that she would give it another go. So thankfully for all of us, otherwise we wouldn't have had so much brilliant music. She would have been just developing photographs, which is random. So um, she, there was a little bit of money left um, from the Eunice Wayman Fund, uh, which she used to enrol as a private student for Vladimir Sokolov, which I've probably said wrong, um, who basically would have been her tutor if she'd gone to the Curtis Institute. I cannot say Curtis Institute. He basically confirmed that she really should have been a successful scholarship student um, and that she was good enough. So that meant that she finally believed it herself and then was determined that she would basically find any way she could to pay for her studies so that she could still become the first black classical concert pianist no matter what happened, basically. Um, so, yeah, so at this point, she's anyway, he's, she's working with him uh, and she's sort of back on track to try and achieve her dream of becoming a, a classical concert pianist. Um, so obviously the money that was left wasn't very much from the Eunice Wayman Fund, so she had to earn money to try and keep paying for her studies. Um, so she got a job as an accompanist for a local singing teacher who paid her $1 per hour. Um, and Was that minimum wage? Uh, I reckon not even. Was that legal? I can't. I, I reckon no. <laughs> I'm going to go with no, probably not legal. Um, and what is that in today's money, that $1? I haven't got a clue, to be honest with you. Ah, oh, Kerry. So these that's, are the details you need to these, you need to you that's need to like these details, I, I wouldn't man. even know how to go about figuring that out like I don't do numbers <laughs> so <laughs> just accept what I'm telling you one dollar per hour sounds like not very much and that was the only point I wanted to get across so deal with okay. it okay <laughs> <laughs> um and it was that's was interesting because doing that was actually the first time that she sort of really thought about her singing voice and it was the first time that she earned money um, from singing. You know, I think in her family and at church and stuff, there was always a lot of singing, but she was primarily a pianist. So this was the first time, you know, she was singing to try and help the children um, that she was accompanying to learn in their lessons. Um, and so that was the first time she sort of earned money for singing. Um, and then obviously real, that money was rubbish. So she realised if she just became a private tutor herself uh, that she could earn more. Um, so she became a private tutor uh, where she charged $2.50 per hour, um, which still sounds like nothing, but I assume was something more reasonable at the time. Uh, and she rented a, a storefront, uh, which basically served as both her teaching studio, her rehearsal studio and her bedroom. So she lived in the storefront, taught out of it, practiced there um, and everything, basically. And she did that until the summer of 1954, uh, where she got a job playing piano in a bar in Atlantic City um, called the Midtown Bar and Grill, which she did. She had some students uh, that were doing it, and basically it paid double what she was earning uh, teaching, and that was before tips. So she, with tips on top of that, she could earn even more. Um, but the only thing about working in a bar for her was she was scared of her mother finding out because her mother was extremely religious. She was a preacher, um, and basically working in a bar would be the same as like working in the fires of hell <laughs> to her so she couldn't have her mother find out basically that that she was working in a bar so she decided she needed a stage name you see where this is leading i have no idea and what was her stage <laughs> name kerry believe it or not her stage name was nina simone but do you know how she came up with that name I do, and I'm about to tell you. So, uh, she had had a Hispanic boyfriend uh, who called her Nina, 
uh, which means little one in Spanish. And she'd always loved how it sounded. So that was where the name Nina came from. Um, and then she also liked the name Simone uh, because of the actress Simone Signore. Signore? Gonna, that was probably wrong. I was getting made fun of by uh, some of our friends for how bad I am at pronouncing foreign names in this podcast. So, uh, yeah, Simone Signore. I feel like that was quite good. I'm, it I sounded good, whether it was right or not. It sounded amazing. Cool, we're going to go with it. Uh, who was uh, an actress in French films that uh, she loved to watch. Um, and so, yeah, put the two together and she came up with the name Nina Simone. So it was a name that she created for playing in a seedy bar in Atlantic City. And it stuck with her for her whole career, which is pretty cool. So um, it was uh, it was playing in the bar. You know, it was a seedy bar when she turned up uh, to, for the gig the first day. There was like an air conditioner like dripping onto the seat of the of the piano stool. And the, the owner just kind of went and like stuck an umbrella up there. Um, so you kind of get an idea of the vibe um, of the place. Um, but it was playing in the bar that sort of really shaped what became her unique sound. Um, because she would base, she wouldn't play with any sheet music or anything. She had it all stored up here in her head. Um, and she would basically just combine all of the music that she had learned and that she knew, which included popular songs, hymns, gospel songs, classical pieces, and would sort of, you know, start playing one, improvise on it, um, and then sort of through that improvisation, move on to the next one, all between these different styles and everything. Um, and through doing this, she sort of became looser and more relaxed about music, because obviously having this very strict sort of classical training, it was all about playing the pieces and doing them perfectly. And it was through doing this that she learned to be relaxed and sort of create something new. So it was the first original music she ever really played. Um, but yeah, if you listen to her style, it does pull on all of these different things. You know, she has quite a classical way of playing, but at the same time, there is so much like gospel in there and blues and folk and it's so unique. Um, it's one of the reasons that I think she's so amazing. And it sort of, yeah, was born out of playing in these bars, which is interesting. Um, so her performances became increasingly popular, you know, I think because she was so unique um, compared to the other people doing it and so much better than the other people doing it, I think. Um, and so uh, she started getting offers from agents to play in more bars and clubs, both in Atlantic City and in Philadelphia. Um, so she was doing this for a while um, until she was then picked up by Jerry Shields, um, who was an agent from New York, who uh, sort of became her agent and was her agent for the next five years until he died. And he got her then starting to perform regularly in New York and sort of booking her little tours up and down the East Coast. Um, so at this point, she was, yeah, touring and playing a lot more, but at the same time, still only really doing all of this um, to keep paying for her tuition um, with the the tutor from, with Vladimir from the Curtis Institute, because she was just doing it all to make money to still try and become a classical pianist. Um, so through starting to play in New York, uh, there was a demo tape that was recorded at the New Hope Playhouse Inn, um, which was heard by some guys from Bethlehem Records. Um, and they basically wanted her to record an album. So Sid Nathan from the label turned up at her house and told her that they had a set of songs they wanted her to do. They had a set of musicians that they wanted her to record with basically just telling her that she would have to do what they wanted, to which she was like, nah, not happening. Um, you know, she 
was still focused on wanting to become a classical pianist. She didn't really care um, about what she was doing, sort of playing pop music and wasn't that interested in making an album particularly, so had no problem turning down the record deal, essentially, which I think gave him a bit of a shock. Um, So he went home, uh, but then came back the next day and was basically like, fine, you can do whatever you want as long as you're in the recording studio tomorrow. So she agreed uh, and was in the studio the next day and recorded uh, a whole bunch of songs, um, including I Love You Porgy and My Baby Just Cares For Me, uh, which are still sort of two of her most popular and well-known songs that she performed. Um, And she played them basically exactly how she would play them at the at the Midtown Bar and Grill. Um, so she says, you know, if you listen to that album, you'll really hear how she was playing in those early days um, and the way that she sort of improvised on the songs and interlaced all these different things. So um, it's really interesting for that. Uh, so the album was called Little Girl Blue and I'm going to include a link to that so people can have a listen if you would like. So that album was released in 1958 and uh, I Loves You Porgy became a hit um, and so Nina moved to New York um, to basically be where the action was and and go from there. Um, so her deal with Bethlehem um, was just for one album. So she then signed to Columbia Pictures Records, also known as Colpix, um, and put out another album called The Amazing Nina Simone. But um, interestingly, basically at the end of her recording session with Bethlehem, they sort of handed her a contract and well, like, sign this. And she didn't read it, didn't have any lawyers or anything at that time, didn't have a manager, um, just signed it um, and essentially just signed away all of her rights, really, to to all of the music, which she says cost her basically millions of dollars. Um, and so, strangely, when her, what, her when, what should have been her second album came out on Colpix, The Amazing Nina Simone, Bethlehem put out an album at the same time, as a follow-up to her first album with them, uh, which was some tracks Cause. that... Fucking fuckers, exactly. Uh, of the few songs that weren't released on the first album. So she sort of... Her second album was competing with her second album, which was really odd <laughs> that she had nothing to do with. So that was a bit of a weird situation. So at this point, you know, she'd sort of had a few albums and had had a hit record, but still wasn't really that famous. She was still playing kind of small clubs... Um, up and down the east coast um, but then Jerry Fields decided her agent decided it was time for her to move into larger halls so he put her on the bill for a concert at the New York City Town Hall um, and she basically felt like all of those club dates had all just been a trashy rehearsal um, for this gig at the Town Hall where she was finally playing on you know a real concert platform kind of what she'd always dreamed of to some extent um, so and this was really the turning point for her Um, The audience went absolutely wild for her performance. Um, She was an overnight success. Um, She didn't really understand it. Um, You know, the New York press suddenly went crazy for her and were hailing her a new star. But she was sort of like, but I'm not a new star. I've had a couple of albums. I've had a hit record. Um, um, But this really changed it. And she sort of became, you know, she was getting... Uh, recognised on the street. She was getting offered concerts across the States. Um, her records were released in Europe um, and TV producers started to want her on, her on their shows. So this is where she really achieved real fame, real money and sort of respect. And she was touring all over the country um, and just kind of becoming more and more successful from this point. 
So this is where she sort of hit the big time, if you like, whatever you want to call it. Um, so the last sort of little chapter um, that I want to talk about with her um, was where she then sort of got more involved in the political side of things with the civil rights movement. Um, because, yeah, sort of this being her sort of origin story, um, Sierra is sort of like a superhero of music in general, but um, also sort of a superhero of, of the civil rights movement. So that's the the last bit I want to talk about. Um, so in the early 60s was where she sort of really started to pay attention to what was happening around her and the advances that were being made in the civil rights movement. So although there had sort of been moments in her life where she had experienced prejudice because of her race, she'd never really identified herself with the with the wider movement until she became friends uh, with Lorraine Hansbury, who was uh, the first black writer to have a hit Broadway play uh, with Raisin in the Sun in 1958. Um, and she really began Nina Simone's education as to like the bigger picture of the movement and what was happening and and taught her that being black sort of meant that she was involved in the struggle, whether she wanted to admit it or not. So she had sort of been, I suppose, in, in a sort of denial about the bigger picture of it all. Um, and this sort of made her realise that, you know, she really started to see herself as a black person in a country run by white people and a woman in a world run by men uh, and what that sort of meant. Um, so the final straw really came for her um, in 1963, when on the 15th of September... Um, she heard over the radio that somebody had thrown dynamite into the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, um, while black children were attending a Bible study class. Shit. And four girls were killed. So um, it was the KKK um, basically bombed this church and, yeah, killed four four girls, four, four children. Um, so when she heard the news, she said that she basically just sat there dumbstruck um, as she suddenly realised what it was to be black in America in 1963. And it all sort of came over her in this rush of like fury and hatred um, and determination. So she sort of just went a bit insane, really. Um, and she went to the garage and, and she gathered together a bunch of tools and junk um, and one, was trying to make a homemade pistol um, because she just wanted to go out and kill someone, anyone that she could identify as being in the way of her people getting justice. Um yeah, she just she was so angry, so like blinded by rage, and she just wanted to go out there and kill. Well, it's probably a re- realization then, of of so many things, right? Just like an awakening of well, yeah, being taken advantage exactly of by by so many white people over the like, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly that. Like it all just sort of came together in this moment. Um, you know, all the prejudice she'd experienced in her life, all the prejudice she'd seen, the people she knew experienced. In fact, sort of just before this, um, Medgar Evans was killed as well, who was a friend of hers and a sort of a leader in the movement. And that was sort of the beginning of this. And then this is where she really snapped. Um, so kind of, I suppose, sort of thankfully, uh, her husband, who was a cop, came home <laughs> while she was trying to make this gun uh, and said to her, um, you don't know anything about killing. The only thing you've got is music. Um, um, so yeah, when she, when she calmed down, um, was able to think straight, um, she sat down at her piano and within an hour had written Mississippi Goddamn, uh, which is a song I absolutely love. It's probably my favorite one of her songs. Um, and it was the first political civil rights song that she wrote. Uh, and it kind of from that point for the next seven years, she was really driven by the civil rights movement and the hope for black revolution. Um, and yeah, that song 
it's really worth a listen if you haven't heard it. I think that um, a lot of people actually aren't very aware, really, of her of her political music as much as they are things like, yeah, my baby just cares for me and I put a spell on you and sort of those more popular songs that were her hits um, because her political music, her political songs were never really her hits for a number of reasons. Um, I suppose she was a pop artist first and the sort of the political songs came a little bit later after she had her her original success and maybe some people weren't that into it but also they just couldn't they wouldn't get any air she couldn't get any airtime for them really I'm sure that a lot of people may be aware of the sort of political side to to her career but for anyone who wasn't I hope that they can um they'll go and, and enjoy listening to those songs and sort of learning about that side of her life but also I think that people We'll, de- we'll, we'll be more likely to appreciate listening to those songs now than maybe a lot of people did at the time because you are looking back with that perspective. Whereas at the time, the thing is that she was actually very early to have such politically explicit content um, and civil rights themes in her music, um, you know, as early as 1963. And the reality is that that stuff just wouldn't get played on the radio. You know, people who were part of the movement were listening to it, but even black radio stations um, banned a lot of her songs because it was a woman singing it. And I think that a big part of her contribution to the movement was really to do with what she did for black women, um, because they were quite underrepresented um, amongst sort of movement leaders and quite oppressed. Um, You know, there was sort of obviously racial oppression and then there was another level of of gender oppression happening. And That's um, what makes this so important is, you know, this was a time where... It, it it really wasn't accepted for women to speak out, whether it was in no, support exactly. of, you know, a race cause or not. You know, it was it, it's a man's world. We, we, we pretty much say this on every single episode. It's a man's world. But no, but <laughs> it, it literally was. And it was like it didn't matter if no, there was completely. an important and, you know, very public voice that was out there that was a woman's. It was it was so often dismissed that the fact that we know about the civil rights movement but quite often you'll hear just about like Malcolm X and I'm not saying oh just Malcolm X like you know he he was obviously a very important person but the point is I don't think you hear about voices like Nina Simone in the same in the same conversations you don't no, exactly, but, that's it. But there are a lot of voices of women, and not just women in, like, music, but but women within the movement that you don't hear so much about. Well, yeah, well, that well that's it. So, I mean, for one, I mentioned one earlier, Lorraine Hansberry. Like, I wonder how many people would have heard of her before. Um, and, you know, she, she was um, an important female voice um, within the movement. And then, yeah, like you say, people have heard of Nina Simone as much as they'll have heard of, um, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, I imagine, but just not necessarily in relation to the civil rights movement, right? It's like people have separated her, these different parts of her her career, when actually they were all quite intertwined, really. Um, So, yeah, Mississippi Goddamn is an amazing song. I'm going to include um, a link to uh, one of my favourite performances um, of that. It's only a recording, not a video, unfortunately, but... Um, the recording of the performance she did at Carnegie Hall in New York in 1994, um, where which is really interesting 
because I think that is an example of a lot of her performances and that's an example of one that would, would have been to a majoritively white audience. Um, and it's such, I mean, 1994 again, you're still talking really early on in the movement. And if you listen to it and kind of, not like 1994, I don't think I meant 1994, I meant 1964. You can really hear sort of like, almost like a contempt in her voice. Uh, like when she introduces the song, she says, um, this song's called Mississippi Goddamn and I mean every word of it. And it is so explicit in, in its lyrical content in terms of talking about, about the movement uh, and everything that was wrong at that time. Um, and it's interesting because she says that and the audience will sort of laugh and as the song goes on and she sort of interjects with other little bits throughout the song, you sort of feel the discomfort of the audience and this sort of conflict going on between her on stage and the audience. Um, and then until there's a later part in the song where she interjects saying, um, what is it that she says? She says, uh, this song is a show tune, but the, but the show hasn't been written for it yet. And by that point, there's sort of like this really uncomfortable, slight titter of laughter. But it's very different to the laughter at the beginning. I don't know. It's just really fascinating. Or I think it's really fascinating. Other people may disagree to listen to and just hear this this conflict that was going on because she was this massive sort of famous star by this point and playing huge, you know, huge concert halls like Carnegie Hall. Where that's also a, there's also an interesting sort of side of that whereby it was always her dream to play at Carnegie Hall as a classical concert pianist and she had like this real struggle with the fact that she'd made it there but not in the way that she had hoped kind of because of her race and because of having been rejected from the Curtis Institute um, earlier in life which then led her down this path of being a popular performer as opposed to a classical performer which seemed to just whatever happened she just couldn't get there because of her race um so yeah, I don't know, just that whole performance at Carnegie Hall is fascinating for so many reasons. Um, so go listen to that recording of Mississippi Goddamn and keep all of these this sort of context in mind because uh, it's just, yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. Um, and yeah, I guess to sort of sum up this, this story, um, you know, she was one of the first black artists to express politically explicit civil rights theme in her music themes in her music um and she was one of the most visible artists to contribute to the movement so you know she was one of those people that basically stood up and said you know we are all equal at a time when it was you know hard to do that and dangerous to do that you know you were putting your life at risk um appearing when she appeared at a lot of these public political events and so on um you know you were putting your life at risk um and she you know she earned a special status among sort of movement workers for that um and you know i think a lot of people don't know about this whole sort of political side to her career necessarily i think a lot of people do but i think that a lot of people have just sort of heard of nina simone and know her more popular songs um so for those who don't i hope that this will sort of lead them to go check out um some more of her political songs um songs like old jim crow for women blackbird to be young gifted and black revolution um, her version of Strange Fruit as well um, is one of the most powerful uh, gut-wrenching recordings of a gut-wrenching song I've ever heard, originally sung by Billie Holiday in 1939 and is widely considered to be um, the first real popular protest song. So there's sort of a whole episode that could be done on that song alone, really. Um, but yeah, go check all this stuff out. Um, learn more about um, the civil rights movement and the the people and the artists that were involved because uh, it's a really 
for one thing, interesting side of history, but also just so important um, to sort of understand the the amazing advancements that that people made during that time because life wouldn't be the same otherwise. With, really. Without that, I'm going to make a connection in the sense that Nina Simone, American, Brom, uh-huh. from the band I'm about to play, Tiger Mimic, is American. That's the connection. And uh, he met I mean, Jess... It, it, it's a, te- it's a, it's it's a, a tenuous link. link. It's a shit it's a link, link nonetheless. Right. <laughs> but basically, Tiger Mimic are a fantastic band and we're putting out their new record, um, which comes out on the 8th of May, and it's called It Was Still Dark. So I think I should stop rambling and let you listen to it. So here it is. brand new single it was still dark which is out on the 8th of may via 31 percent wall 
so you should check them out on all of their social media channels. They're absolutely incredible. And this song, even though they're a relatively new band, is has been getting fantastic pickup from radio, like John Kennedy on Radio X, Charlie Ashcroft on Amazing Radio. You know, the, the, the second the single was announced, people were just, just grabbing hold of it and playing it. So it's a really good sign. So if you want to check them out on social media, they are at Tiger Mimic on Twitter. Yes, that's what it's called, Twitter. That, that is that, that is, is the, the name, name of, of that, that social platform. media thing. It is known as Twitter. Uh, the other one is at Tiger Mimic Band, and that is Facebook. <laughs> and the other one, because there's only, there's only two. <laughs> there's only two. There aren't any others. What about Instagram? Uh, they're Tiger.Mimic, I think. Let me just double check that quickly, quickly. Talk, Kerry. Say something entertaining while I just do my research on the fly. Well, I, w- I, well, I would, but you haven't stopped talking to let me say something entertaining, which is pretty much okay. how it goes. It is um, tiger.mimic on Instagram. So they've got some fun stuff on there. So so check it out. So given that you talked for ages, Kerry, shall I just jump straight in on mine? Yeah, I feel like you probably should. I think I've definitely talked too much at this point, so I should maybe. Just it was really good though. It was really good, it. and it was a nice reminder of a, a book that I really enjoyed reading about an artist that I absolutely adore. So, um, so yeah. So without further delay, I shall get onto this. So I'm doing the Sid and Nancy story in a really light touch way. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite sure how that's going to work, but let's see what happens. Uh, meaning light touch on detail. <laughs> oh, I see. I thought you meant like you're going to put like a light, happy spin on it. And I was yeah, like, mm, I'm not just quite Just going to make sure up that... a new ending. Yeah. Just just, <laughs> just yeah. end it differently. Just completely lie. Go and for it. I'm excited. Guess. Sid and Nancy went on to be children's entertainers. And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I would love to see that show. It would be horrific. <laughs> okay, okay. Right, so... Sid Vicious was... Ooh, there we go, got my notes open. So Sid Vicious was born Wait. on the 10th of May in 1957 as Simon John Ritchie, but also known as John Beverly. As a kid, they moved from Tunbridge Wells to Bristol and finally settled in Stoke Newington in North London. Needless to say, with all of this, he did actually have quite a troubled childhood and the the moving around wasn't wasn't because they were rich and just wanted a bigger house, put it that way. So, I mean, <laughs> his mother later in life, once, you know, people who know the Sid and Nancy story ultimately know that it has quite a tragic ending. And his mother was interviewed uh, a, a few times. And this is a quote that, that she, she says and, and seems to be quite proud of, of saying this and doesn't seem to realise that it's wrong. She says that um, basically she kicked him out when he was 16 and she's quoted as saying, it's either you or me. I've got to try and preserve myself so you can fuck off. Oh, that's a, yeah. a lovely thing. Yeah, so his family life wasn't great. I mean, to give it some context, which doesn't make it right, but just so you understand what was going on, his mother was into some some pretty hardcore drugs. So right. it was it was a case of she couldn't afford to have him around so she kicked him out. Mm. And he also developed his own, you know, um, issues as well of, of you know, becoming an al- pretty much an alcoholic at a really early 
age too. Kicked out of schools. Right. Ended up going to a college in um, Holloway Road that was for kids that had been suspended from or well expelled from from schools. So this was their last ditch attempt at, at educating educating the the youth of today. <laughs> educating yeah. the youth. And he had he had a, a counsellor, but you know. He still tried to kill himself when he was young. And from from the reports I've read, he was actually quite a bright and intelligent boy. So it's just quite a tragic start. And I do wonder whether he actually had the right support for him in place at that at that time. I mean, I don't you know, I don't I don't from, from what I've read, I don't think this just is about his horrific childhood, because I can only imagine what that must be like growing up with with someone who just has such little regard for you that they chuck you out when you're 16. Sure. Anyway, moving on from that, he was quite a suggestible teenager, and although sheepish and shy... Sheepish. And shy. Sheepish. Sheepish. And shy, he sheepish. soon grew into his role of a punk rocker, not that it was called that at the time. Um, I like the idea of Sid Vicious just being like, I'm going to be a punk exactly. rocker Exactly, he, he <laughs> defined that. that no, no, he didn't. Um, sure. Anyway, 1976, <laughs> 100 Club had a punk festival. Now, the 100 Club, for those that don't know, because we have, we're delighted to say, listeners from all around the world, as far as, like, New Zealand, in the US, Stockholm, Germany, everywhere. Just those those three places. No, there's there's quite a long list. Just, but, uh, <laughs> oh, you said you know, more than three. Count the, uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so the Hundred Club is quite a legendary venue that's on Oxford Street in the centre of of London, and it's still there today. It's a bit of an odd venue, like the shape and. I don't think, I don't think I've ever school. been there. There's there's loads of bands that that come through London. And they play quite intimate intimate shows there. I think it's only like. 200 capacity something like that i might have got that wrong okay. but it's not a huge it's not a huge venue uh but if, if you do get a chance sure. and you're in london to see a show there it is it's really something it's it's just yeah just the history alone is worthwhile going to visit but anyway back to this this festival um it was a punk festival that took place at the 100 club and um sid vicious took not that he was called sid vicious at this stage um took to the stage as a drummer for susie and the Banches. Oh, I never knew that that was yeah, a thing that happened. Yeah. And he was actually... I didn't sorry. know... It, I was going to say, I didn't, I didn't know he could play drums. I don't think he could particularly well. And we'll come on to his musicianship <laughs> in a minute. But, um, yeah. but no, he was, he, was, look, he was quite an aggressive lad. He was riotous. He was aggressive. But he was also quite sweet and charming and funny when he wasn't off his face, mm. is, is what people... Say, which, <laughs> bit like um, you, really, Angela. Yeah, I could. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I'll read this next <laughs> bit, and you you tell me if this is something I would do. Right. Okay. So okay, sure. he was also auditioning for lots of bands at this time, and not uh-huh. getting invited to to join these bands. And one of the bands that he auditioned for was The Damned. So anyway, the next day after this punk festival, The Damned, who by the way, Croydon lads. Formed any any opportunity formed in Croydon. Any opportunity Croydon to bring birth, up Croydon, birthplace of punk. I do live in Croydon, so you know, proud. I am proud. David Bowie also went to Croydon School of Art for like one 
hour, I think. He walked in and walked back out and never came back. <laughs> I love that. I love that. He was there. Um, anyway, so the next day during the dance set, it was, I mean, it was, it was quite a rowdy crowd that were there. But Sid threw a glass um, and it hit a young woman in the face and she received quite severe eye injuries. So, you know, Sid was arrested and packed off to a remand centre. But apparently the reason why he threw the glass was not obviously just being a dick. Um, I mean, he's still a dick for what this says next, but his intention was to actually (laughs) hit the singer of The Damned in the face, but he missed. And it ricocheted off a speaker and hit this, this poor girl. I mean, throwing glass in a in a public place is never really going to end well, no. is it? No, well, that was his intention. So he actually wanted to... Because he was jealous. To glass yeah, someone in the face, just jealous. not this woman. Um, so, yeah. For, for, for the record, no, I don't <laughs> think that you would glass someone in the face. To my knowledge of you, the only person you've ever glassed in the face is yourself. Oh, God. Yes. Which I'm not suggesting you tell that story, but I, that just, I think sounds we could like just leave it at that. It was a drunken accident where I was being sick <laughs> and then went to get a glass of water from the fl- that was next to me and kind of just collapsed into it, into my face. Um, <laughs> Peaceful. Classy. Moving on from that. So while he was in remand centre, um, he was reading a book about Charles Manson. Because Charles Manson just has to come up in every, every story. Every single that you tell, person actually. I pick, there's a Charles Manson link. And you know what? Um, it was Vivian Westwood that lent him that book. He's quoted as saying, "It was really interesting." I don't know if he meant that in like, <laughs> sarcasm or whether he actually did find it interesting. Who knows? To, to be fair, I'm starting to get worried about how interesting you find Charles Manson, and I feel like I'm concerned I, what road you're I going down do with all of really this. I really do. Well, I think we should start the cult of Bug Eye, but that aside, um, <laughs> no, I mean, Charles Manson, I'm not going to give him any airtime. I think he's a shitbag. But the point is, what I'm just surprised about is that his name just seems to pop up everywhere, but also the fact that people just thought he was cool. Even after what he did, anyway. Anyway, it yeah, it's yeah, crazy. It's mental. It is really crazy. So Sid formed a band with his friend Albertine, and they were called the Flowers of Romance. And he learnt to play bass by listening to the Ramones' first album. Now, that there, there's some conflicting bits about when he actually learnt to play the bass, but that's that's one side. And it, of and, it. and and if he ever and if he ever well, did learn yes, to play the bass, exactly. <laughs> um, so. Gonna get me other book out now. Um, Ooh, multiple books where I've trashed and just highlighted things. So the Sex Pistols. <laughs> now we'll talk about how they were formed really briefly in a minute. But just to talk about um, Sid Vicious, he actually joined the Sex Pistols in 1977. He stepped into the role of bass player, which was um, replacing Glenn Matlock. Now. Matlock allegedly was sacked from the Sex Pistols for liking the Beatles. Yeah. Really? And Matlock made... Yeah, Solid exactly. reasoning. I mean, he made no secret of the fact that he, he could actually play really well. Um, and he was keen for the Sex Pistols to develop sort of as a first-rate rock and roll band. And he had a complete dislike of Johnny Rotten's lyrics. 
Um, and he was quite irritated by their unprofessional, as he calls it, disgusting attitude. I think he was in the wrong band. So it's a, it's it's a, it sounds like more of a case of like a pretty general artistic kind of difference yeah, there, as exactly. opposed to just because he he liked the Beatles. Out of interest, what what band could I say that I liked to get myself kicked out of Bug Eye? Um, no comment. <laughs> I think you know. No comment. <laughs> Right, moving on. <laughs> so, so yeah, so Matt was replaced by um, Sid. And, uh, I mean, the thing is, it, it, Sid actually already knew Johnny Rotten. Like, they all hung out and they all gave each other nicknames. Um, but the, the, the fact that the person that replaced Matt with Sid Vicious was actually the band's manager, Malcolm McLaren. And it kind of says a lot that he would have a great musician removed and then have someone put in place who who couldn't actually play. Right. So, yeah. Kind of shows that, that it wasn't really about the music, no, right? exactly. And did you know, so on the 9th of March, 1977, was when the Sex Pistols were signed to A&M Records and they were signed for £25,000. And then wow. a and Records wanted to get rid of them. And there's this whole thing about... I'm reading something out of a book called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, and I don't want to go into this, but essentially A&M Records um, didn't keep hold of the Sex Pistols, and the Sex Pistols managed to to leave A&M Records and get 50k for doing it or something like that. So wow. double your money by doing something that I'm not I've got no <laughs> facts about at all but um yeah standard standard yes. so okay moving on to Nancy Spungen I'm sure a lot of people do talk about her but I think you know people think Sid and Nancy I was about to say I'm not sure that I really know anything Apart- about her yeah so enlighten um, me there's great videos online and she really reminds me of someone who I'll I'll, I'll mention that to you off air later <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, so Nancy Spungen was born in Feb oh, oh, in February, yeah, in February, on the twenty seventh. That makes sense. Of February, in nineteen fifty eight, in Philadelphia. My niece was also born in February on the twenty seventh. I was going to say I thought you were just going to stop at in February. <laughs> I was like, that's a little bit of a yeah. But not in nineteen fifty eight because that would make me really <laughs> old. Um, anyway, she nearly died. Not my niece, uh, Nancy. Um, she nearly Good died of oxygen, um, of oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> this is going really well. <laughs> okay. She nearly died after being choked by her umbilical cord during delivery. And apparently there was no, like, sort of brain damage or anything like that uh, from, from that instant. And you'll understand why I've mentioned that in in a moment. She grew up in a middle-class Jewish family in the suburbs. Uh, They weren't Mm -hmm. poor or anything like that, so so different from Sid. Um, She was a bright kid. She scored superior in an intelligence test and was allowed to skip third grade. So keep that in mind as well. Super intelligent, um, Mm -hmm. but she had massive anger issues and no one could understand why. Um, and this right. this was from a really early age. She was violent to her little sister, 
and apparently threatened to kill a babysitter with a pair of scissors and also attempted to batter her psychiatrist and that was at age 11. And a lot of this stuff was like unprovoked. She would have these manic episodes. Um, Right. So I personally feel that, you know, there's lots of stuff said that she was just... um, no, someone even the press nicknamed her nauseating Nancy and just thought she was completely vile I think there was some real mental health issues here well and, yeah it definitely sounds like you it. know it again someone who just didn't get the help that they 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 needed really For sure and um I mean so she was expelled from school and sent off to another school in Connecticut which I think was a boarding school because yeah, the next thing says that you know in like you know in 1972 she ran away and attempted suicide by slitting her wrists with scissors. You don't do that if if you're happy jolly person. You know there's something no. really going on there. Um, but you know a psychiatrist uh, diagnosed her with schizophrenia at age 15, and actually at the time a lot of people were being dis you know um, misdiagnosed. With, sure. with, you know, put under an umbrella or something. Anyway, she left sure. home at 17 and moved to New York where she worked as a sex worker before moving to London in 1977 where she'd soon meet Sid. So, I mean, that was that was Nancy and there's, there's various interviews with her that you can check out online. But I just want to go into a little bit before I talk about Sid and Nancy together, just about how the Sex Pistols were um were created i don't know people seem to have like a view of them as i mean they were complete rebels and a bit uncontrollable but it was it was a lot by design by the people that that were behind them as well so for example malcolm mclaren took an interest in the band and started advising them on what songs they should attempt and turning them onto like bands like the new york dolls um, who he also used to manage um, at, at one mm. at one stage, but we'll go back a bit. So Malcolm McLaren, who was the manager of the Sex Pistols, went to Croydon School of Art, where he met political activist Jamie Reed. So, as I say, Malcolm McLaren was the manager, and Jamie Reed, for those that don't know, um, created all the famous artwork that you associate with the Sex Pistols. So, God Save the Queen. Um, Never mind the bollocks. Any kind of gig poster, um, you know, this was this was all Jamie Reed's work. And Jamie's early work actually developed from the creation of a political paper called the Suburban Press, which he ran for five years. Uh, it was done in a kind of ransom note style. It was angry, but it was also filled with like a lot of lot of humour. And it was at a time in Croydon where there was a lot of regeneration work going on, and a bit of he was sort of kicking off and having a bit of a backlash uh, against that. And I sort of wonder what he was, um, what he thinks of the regeneration that's happening now in in Croydon. I mean, he did do an art exhibition a couple of years ago at a friend of ours gallery, uh, which makes me sound like a posh wanker, like my friend's (laughs) gallery, but no, um, Rise Gallery in Croydon. And Jamie Reid had a new piece of art on display there that was on sale for £1 million. Not sure anyone in Croydon was going to pay for that, but, you know. Uh, Anyway, so the New Britain was emerging. Progress would apparently uh, bring a brighter future for the disgruntled youth. 
Um, but they were starting to get angry. And I've, I've tried to be such a wanker with this next bit. A new movement was about to be born. It was time for anarchy in the UK. Dun, dun. Welcome to punk. <laughs> wow, you uh, you really hammed that one up. Oh, didn't yeah, you? yeah. <laughs> did you... Uh, did you write that yourself? Or did no, you I did write that myself. I did an article, I did an article about uh, Malcolm McLaren and Jamie Reid and Croydon. I've, I've, I have a, a uh-huh. an arts and cultural site, basically it's a blog, um, oh, with my oh. partner Julia and it's called The Croydonist and there's, um, there's, there's, there's lots of cool articles on there, if I don't mind saying so myself. Cool. <laughs> Little yeah, self-plug yeah. there. There you go. Anyway, so Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood had a shop on the King's Road called Sex. It, Good name well, for a shop. Well, for the, the time, I mean, now you just go, <laughs> oh, whatever. But at the time, you yeah, know, for sure, on King's Road, and it specialised in clothing that defined the look of the punk movement. So Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood were in a relationship, and I, I had no idea about this part of the story. Um, until I started researching this. Anyway, so it had a huge pink rubber sign outside. The walls had graffiti of the the Scum Manifesto, which was written by a radical feminist. So that was like sort of decorated on the walls. And Sid worked there as well as uh, Chrissy Hind. All mm. the punk kids used to hang out there. Big old, big, big old centre of yeah. everything then. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing about Chrissy Hind was... At the time, she was um, auditioning for lots of bands, and I think it was Johnny Rotten who said this in a in an interview was that Chrissy was always auditioning but never getting into bands, and it was basically because she was a woman and people didn't want a woman in yeah. their band. But you know how she can laugh at everyone now because the Pretenders went on to be bigger than than any of those bands. So Malcolm McLaren designed the Sex Pistols clothes and Vivian Westwood made them. So you have to look at this, that he selected the band members, he's coaching them on songs, which managers do anyway, and he's dressing them. It starts to smell a little bit like a manufactured band. So they were basically the Spice Girls. A, a dirty <laughs> version of the Spice Girls. Yeah, the, di- the dirty Spice Girls. <laughs> I like that. The dirty, the dirty male. But also, stuff. Malcolm McLaren created loads of the famous punk PR stunts of like when they, I think they stole a boat and sailed down the Thames and stopped outside the Houses of Parliament and were yelling stuff. That was all planned um, by Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. But then you know you'll read stuff by Johnny Rotten who thinks that McLaren was a was a dick and whatever. I mean the thing is the Sex Pistols it worked because they had the attitude. They still had the songs. They still couldn't play, but it wasn't about being able to to play amazing music. That was, you know, I think it was skilled in its own in its own chaotic, yeah, for chaotic sure. way. You know, I mean, I mean, if it wasn't, we wouldn't. It wouldn't all be so famous and well remembered, would it? Like it obviously did what it was supposed to no, do. No, exactly. At the time. But then there's there's arguments as in were they remembered more because then Sid Vicious killed him, you know, died and just so. Like notoriety, yeah, sort of exactly. Thing. But you know what? That that aside, um, let's get back to Sid and Nancy, which are the the point of this of this story, I suppose. Um, well, not I suppose. I definitely said it was about them, so there's no. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was that was what you that's planned. <laughs> exactly what I said I was going to do. Um, so 
Nancy travelled to London with Johnny Funders and the Heartbreakers to London. Do you want to say London again? She travelled to London. Yeah, say it. Say, with say some rock to London to be in London, and she met Sid Vicious in London. Yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure where they met. Like I tried to find that out, but London's a big old place, so uh, I'm, I'm presuming at a gear. But the two became involved, and uh, it was a relationship of bouts of domestic violence and a lot of drugs. And she was soon na- labelled, as I mentioned before, as nauseating Nancy for her shocking behaviour. Although Sid's was hardly, um, you know, respectful, really. You know, um, yeah. his behaviour was also really irritating. And, and despite the Sex Pistols don't give a fuck attitude, they actually did care about being in a band. Yeah, they, you know, they got drunk and they were all like, you know, political. And it was more about all of that side of things than the musicianship, as I said. But they did take being in a band seriously, like, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, being in a band is a big commitment no matter what. So it's you're going to care about it on well, some yeah, level, I mean, they aren't took, you? They took the gigs, so as out of control as those gigs seemed, you know, you look back at Johnny Rotten and he is totally commanding that audience and running that gig yeah. and, it, you know, and riling up the audience. He's not, like, just falling off the stage like a idiot um he took he took gigs and rehearsal yeah. seriously you know sid's drug addiction took its toll he was wasted at gigs he didn't shut for practice tv interviews and he's falling asleep and the rest of the band uh uh you know alert and not necessarily being polite to presenters but they're at least present <laughs> but they're there you know? they're present um, so this this was actually one of the main reasons the band split up and they weren't really together that that long Punk, the whole sort of punk era was quite short in the grand scheme of of, of things. But Nancy was also sure. banned from their tours and was another main reason for for them breaking up. They tried everything. They just, you know, she can't come to rehearsal. She can't come to gigs. She can't come to tour because she's a bad influence. I think they were just both bad influence on each other. And it was the drug abuse yeah. stuff. It was just too much. So the band split up. But Sid and Nancy continued on their drug-fueled roller coaster of love and violence of each other. And so they stayed in the US, uh, which I think was where the Sex Pistols had their last gig and he just stayed on there. Um, and there's this... I believe... Uh, I think I think the Sex Pistols' last gig was in... Am I mixing up? I wonder if I'm mixing up stories I've looked at now. But I think their last gig was in San Francisco... At some point, I might do a story about there's this whole idea, the curse of San Francisco, where lots of bands have sort of had their last gig that gigs there and then broken up right that's, after. That's a good one, Kerry. We should be writing yeah. these ideas down because I, I've got it written you down. Write mine down as well. I bet you're going to do mine. <laughs> Next week it'll be Charles <laughs> no, Manson I'm... and music links. <laughs> yeah, what? exactly. Yeah. Isabel. Um... I, I I live to steal your ideas, Angela, because I don't have good no, ones of, of my not. own. Um, there's this great interview of Sid and Nancy in bed basically and he's falling asleep snoring she's telling him to wake up because there's someone there interviewing they're like smoking in bed a bit out of it dropping cigarettes and burning themselves and it's just it just it just looks like a disaster zone really um Mm. 
1978, uh, Nancy in this interview actually is saying the reason the band broke up was jealousy. It was one of those things going, Sid, you're the star and Johnny just wasn't giving it anymore and that's why they wanted you out and, you know... Um, and as I say, Sid can hardly string a sentence together. Nancy's a bit more together than Sid, but it's certainly not a picture of domestic bliss. It's really quite a disturbing scene. It's dark yeah. in there. It it just, yeah, it, it almost makes me want to just go and have a shower, just watching it. Yeah, <laughs> just, it's just watching just it. In all of it. It's just, yeah, it's, it's yeah, just yeah, a yeah. mess, an absolute mess. Um in 1978, the couple moved into the Chelsea Hotel. Now, the Chelsea Hotel was famous among artists like Bob Dylan, Iggy Pop, Janis Joplin and Andy Warhol. Yeah, like the whole beat movement. It's yeah. a super famous place for yeah, so yeah. many things. And uh, so, so for two months, it was their hideaway, basically. But friends of the couple were actually really worried about them because, like I say, they just hold up in this hotel room getting trashed no plans of <laughs> what happens next just other than just like getting yeah. completely wasted uh, and they'd have lots of people coming and going um in in the place but uh yeah it 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 something bad was going to happen people just didn't know what so in the early hours yeah. of October the 12th 1978 residents of the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan heard sounds coming from Sid Vicious's room Screams, moans, and cries. But you know, no one did anything. Ten a.m. Yeah, Stand- sorry, say that again. <laughs> As you say, standard bystander yeah. syndrome. Just you know, no, no one wants to get involved. But they? Sid and Nancy were always fighting, and I'm not sure. saying that makes it right. Like I already said, there was like domestic violence on both parts involved. Yeah. So, so maybe it's a case of people were used to their their fights so they didn't get yeah, involved yeah, yeah. I, I get what you mean um but anyway so at 10 a.m sid called the front desk asking for help hotel staff found nancy on the bathroom floor she'd been stabbed in the stomach with a knife she bled to death basically and she was 20 years old that's horrific so she bled to death in the bathroom and you have to wonder whether she was calling for help and the moaning that people heard yeah. was someone was saying that someone's bled to death means that it wasn't quick, right? So, um, so Sid sure. was arrested and charged with the murder. Several sources say he confessed to the crime but recanted this, claiming he was asleep while the murder occurred. The public, family and friends believed him. Several months later, in February 1979, Sid was found dead of a heroin overdose. He was on bail and partying in his Greenwich Village apartment when he was found by his mother and new girlfriend and uh yeah with him dead the charges were dropped i said that's quite quick to get a new girlfriend don't you think yeah for sure especially after your previous girlfriend as well according to your story been murdered while you were asleep in the next room like that would surely be or maybe traumatic. he was so out of it that he doesn't even remember being with nancy ever <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Nothing. Well, yeah. No. I suppose. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure he did. But okay. So, did he kill Nancy or not? There are a few views on this, and you can decide which narrative best suits your your view okay. of what the ending should be. I'm okay. You 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 tell me what they are, and I'll tell you so what my opinion one is. Was it was a botched double suicide, and years and years and years later, mm-hmm. um, Sid's mother said. 
oh, I found a crumpled note in his pocket saying um, we just want to die together or something. Like, it just it sounds ridiculous. I feel I feel like stabbing yourself or, or someone else in the stomach is not the way you go about a kind well, of suicide also, situation. Also, I just think they were taking shit loads of drugs. Why not go, yeah, let's just go out overdose, on like yeah. a massive... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two, sure. the bodyguard stroke drug dealer could have done it. I don't really have any more detail on that. I didn't even know who that is. I've not mentioned him in any other part of this story. I was gonna I was gonna say you've just said that like I'm supposed to know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) That's number two. Okay. Number three. Okay. Um police found fingerprints of six people known to them, but they never followed up on it. So that so that obviously means people that have got records and but you know, that they don't actually elaborate on what they were known for. Was it like a serial killer, a murderer, or was it yeah. they'd been busted for drugs? Like no one. Which is, yeah. And considering that, you know, they had people coming in and out, throwing parties all the time and that sort of stuff. Exactly. It it seems likely that there would have been those sorts of people coming in and out. And, you know, that's not necessarily reason for suspicion in terms of uh, Nancy getting No, killed. exactly. I agree. I agree. And number four... According to witnesses, a drug addict called Michael also lived in the hotel and often visited the couple. And he was seen with a wad of cash tied with um, Nancy's purple hairband after, obviously, not just in general. but um, Right. That's slightly more suspicious. But is it? I mean, he could have just borrowed a hairband or he might just have some purple yeah. hairbands. Maybe he gave her. Sure. Maybe he's she got might a supply have... of purple hairbands that he just gives out to people. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe she paid him some money tied up in her purple and then, hairband. And, and finally, others believe that she did it herself and that Sid just wasn't aware of what was going on because he was asleep. I have a problem with that because I think slitting your mm. wrists, yes, I could believe that, but stabbing yourself in the stomach is is quite full on, really. Yeah, I don't. I feel like that's pretty difficult to do. Under any yeah. circumstances. Or actually, actually, the, the final, final one, because I did say, so that was the penultimate one that I just mentioned, not the last one. That, that basically okay. Sid did it and was just not aware because he was out of it. To, to be honest, that, that feels like the most likely well, one to me. yeah, that... I mean, unless, unless there was a drug dealer that came by and she got into a fight with someone and, and he was... You know, yeah. that is a possibility, actually, but... Uh, I, I suppose sure. that the two people that would have, well, the one person that would have been able to answer that question um, is Nancy, and she's not around. So, no, we will never know. No, exactly. The so, she died when she was 20, and Sid was only 21. So, so sad. So sad. But it also, I mean, it, it is so sad, and this doesn't change that, but it also just seems that they were on such a self-destructive path. It's like there was no other way for it to end, I, really. I, yeah, if there were any interventions that might have changed changed things. Changed the oh, course. Oh, actually, fact, 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 fact for you. How did uh-huh. Sid Vicious get his name? How did Sid Vicious yeah. get his name? Um, I he have no was idea. named after Johnny Rotten's hamster that was called Vicious. <laughs> or was it called Sid? <laughs> no, Vicious. One of the two. 
okay, people can completely go and research this and email us <laughs> and find at rockpoprambles at gmail.com and tell us some 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 real facts about about this case because I clearly don't have any. I like the way you you got you got so excited to interject and finish with that fact, and then you're not even sure about the details of the. No, fact. I did write a note somewhere, and I just sort of looked through my notebook. It says mention the hamster. <laughs> and clearly, when I wrote well, I that, like... I thought, yeah, I'll totally remember this, what that means, and I, yeah. I fi- I feel like regardless, it's quite funny that the name Sid Vicious, like, came from a hamster. Do you know what I mean? It just feels very not punk rock somehow. (laughs) (laughs) So when you associate it with a cute little hamster. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So, yeah, if you've liked these stories, we're going to get onto some other new music in a second. But if if you like this podcast, please do go over to our Patreon and become a member. We've got... Lots of great things on there from bonus podcasts to um, free CDs of like music. There's there's videos, there's all sorts of things. Free, I, I, I like that you, you felt the need to, you know, to specify that they are free CDs of music. They're not free CDs. Of, <laughs> like, I don't know. They're not like free meditation CDs. We're giving away blank like CDs. You reading people bedtime stories, although maybe that's something we should do. <laughs> We're giving away free seat like blank CDs for you to make your own your own punk rock albums. That's not true. Um <laughs> I think I think I think that we should release um bug eye meditation CDs and that but actually it'll be brainwashing to get people into our cult because that's yes, really what we're what yes, we're trying to it do. Is, it is. Uh but also if you have a story that you want us to cover really badly, then please do email us <laughs> at rockpoprambles at gmail. And, uh, yeah, and if you're in a band and you want us to play your music, if we like it, we'll play it. If we don't, we won't. And then speaking of which, Kerry's going to play a song that she does like. Uh, yes, yes, I am going to play uh, a song that I like. Um, so I am going to play a band called Skies for you, uh, who are a band from my neck of the woods uh, down here in Kent, where I am at the moment. Um and uh, I think I might start off by playing the song and then talk about them a little bit afterwards. So here is Born Yesterday.
was born yesterday uh, by skies uh, they're doing a lot of really cool stuff at the moment so you should definitely go check them out um they do a daily live stream uh, from monday to saturday on facebook youtube and instagram all of the places from 7 to 7:30 so uh, they're super busy at the moment doing all of that stuff and then they upload a cover every day um to their youtube channel after the live stream as well and they're doing a really cool thing because uh, they were supposed to have a tour in May, which obviously has been cancelled. So they're doing a set of live stream performances for each night of what would have been that gig. And they've spoken to the venues, uh, all of which are closed at the moment, obviously. And they're keeping the tickets available at a reduced price for those shows. So anyone who had planned on going to those shows, if you would like to help support the venue and the band, then you can pay for those reduced price tickets basically so that the venue still gets some money to help it keep going uh, or you can enjoy it for free as well but you know it's a really cool opportunity to to do something to help out those venues uh, which is a really great idea that they had as well so I think that that's a super cool thing that people should get involved with uh, yeah and alongside all of that uh, they're also releasing a live acoustic album one track per week on their Bandcamp page so they're doing loads and loads of stuff at the moment. So they're a really good band to be a fan of while we're all stuck inside because they are doing loads of stuff for you at home, which is super cool. Yeah, I just literally got an email right now about um, a story for um, Rock Pop Rambles. And it's from Ooh. Julia. <laughs> Who's sitting, <laughs> listening now. She says, if you ever want to do an That's episode amazing. of the podcast... With you and I, we could talk about uh, Michelle Gondry. In, I can't, what, what was that voice? I just did that. Gondry. <laughs> <laughs> in relation to music, art, or alternatively, Jamie Reed. Just mentioned him, Julia. You can't hear what she's saying. She's talking about someone else now. Anyway, thanks, Julia. Brilliant. Well, to to wrap up, if you want to go find uh, Skies to check them out, which you definitely should, they are Skies Band UK on everything. So on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you want to find them any of those places, it is Skies Band UK. So go follow them, listen to their music, whatever you can do to help them, go do it because they're a brilliant band. Cool. Okay, I think, I think that's us wrapping up this show now after five hours. Cool. I think. <laughs> it feels like I've spent my whole life doing this episode, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's been a long one, but a good one, a good one. And if you think it's been a good a good one, <laughs> if you like our show, you're you're the power of your descriptive words as always. Bloody Angela. hell! It's because it's always really late in the evening, and I'm just losing the will to live. Um, if you like the show, please do subscribe to it, and also. If you tag us online in social with a shout out to the podcast and recommend it to your friends, we will give you something. I haven't decided what that is yet. Maybe a shout out on the podcast. I was thinking of doing um, like little jokey jingles for like new Patreon members and stuff like that. And we could we could put that on on air if. uh, Yeah. So if, if people recommend us, Julia's now doing one in the background. Do you want to do that a bit louder? Perfect. No. Okay, I'll see you in a bit, Julia. Nearly done, nearly done. You're going to hear a door open and close. So we're not in a proper studio. I've got a bit of cardboard in front of me at the moment. Are you to... still recording? Yes, Julia, I'm oh. still recording. I, <laughs> I know I talk to Kerry every day, but this is the podcast. So I've got headphones on and a mic in front of me. Are you not talking to anyone? I'm talking to Kerry. Oh, you are talking to Kerry? Yeah, I'm talking to Kerry. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yes, I think if if people want to, we are on social media, at Bug Eye Band on Twitter and on Facebook, Bug Eye Music. If you tag Rock Pop Rambles um, and the band or Evil and you give us a bit of a shout out, we'll do something magical and wonderful on our podcasts to to say thank you who can turn that down (laughs) (laughs) oh Carrie, i love you i love you too (laughs) okay i think i think let's end it there over and out